We're going to get started this morning. It's good to see you. Welcome back to Community Church. We're so glad that you could be here with us. Hope you're having a good week. I hope you're having a great summer. It's heating up out there. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but it's always good to, to get away, get in the house of God, and get around His people. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning. We're going to be covering a portion of Scripture this morning that lies in between the questioning of Christ and His great prophetic discourse just before he institutes the Lord's Supper at the time of Passover. And so, as you'll remember from last week, uh, those who were here or listened to the message, the Sadducees, they tried to trap Christ in a story about a widow who had died. That was in Luke chapter 20, verse 32. And that was all because of their unbelief in the resurrection from the dead. They did not believe in the resurrection. But in our passage today, we're going to see Christ actually commend a widow who truly knew how to live. And uh, it really is a fascinating portion of Scripture this morning. And in a way, it's going to remind us of that story of the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. You'll remember that story. It's similar. Today's passage and that passage are similar in that both of these passages, they're shorter. But as we move through them, then we're no doubt going to begin to see many of the lessons learned in them by way of contrast. And so that's how the lessons are going to be taught to us today, is by contrast largely. So please be careful as we move through this passage this morning to take notice of the many contrasts that, that will just jump off the page. No doubt about that. You're going to see a contrast between hubris and humility. You're going to see a contrast between abundance and poverty. We'll see a contrast between greed and generosity. Commendation and condemnation will be there. We'll see a contrast between giving and getting, selfishness and sacrifice, and I could go on and on. They're all over the place, and I'm sure there's many more that you'll be able to point out as well. But I would just encourage you that as you do see these contrasts come off the page this morning, write them down so that you won't forget. I've often said that when you take one note, it's like hearing that truth three times. You hear it once when you write it down, right? or once when you hear it, again when you write it down, and then again when you go back and look at that note. So that's three times you will hear one truth if you just simply write it down. And, and it's my experience that I retain what I hear from God's word way better, exponentially better when I actually take notes and write down the truth that I hear. So when you go back and review these contrasts that you've written down over the course of this week, don't forget about the application. There's a lot of application in today's passage as well. This will give you time to evaluate your own heart to see what camp you're in, right? For example, today's passage is a lesson, at least in part, about pretense and poverty, okay? And so the application, of course, becomes this. Have I truly forsaken all? and followed Christ? Or am I just pretending? That's the application, at least one of them. So let's pray together quickly again, and then we'll get into our text. We love you, Lord, and thank you for this morning you've given to us. Thank you for the word that's before us. Thank you for your spirit that is within us. And we pray that you would guide us into all truth by the power of your spirit this morning. Help us to only see what you've written, to only hear what you intended for us to hear, not what we want the scriptures to say but what they actually say. Lord, convict our heart this morning. Encourage us if we need that. Please have your way and do your work within us. That's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. 
Amen. So Luke chapter 20 is where we're at this morning. I'm going to start reading in verse 45. We'll read down through chapter 21, verse 4. Starting in verse 45 of chapter 20, Luke writes, Then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best of seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Chapter 21, verse 1. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. Wow, what a fascinating portion of scripture. If you'd like to do a comparison study on the text we're going to be in today, you can find that in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. You can also see it in the gospel of Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. But in Matthew 23, as you do your study, you're going to see a series of woes in that chapter. You're going to see, in fact, eight woes. Basically, the entire chapter of Matthew 23 is a warning against the scribes and the Pharisees. Now we covered six of these woes back in our study of Luke chapter 11 in a message that we called the six woes of religion. And so if you would like to go back and listen to that, I think it would help in your comparison study of this passage this week. You can find that on our podcast, which is accessible through our website, communitychurchunion.com. .org, I'm sorry, thank you, communitychurchunion.org, uh, or any of your podcast platforms will pull that up. We also have videos archived on Facebook, so I recommend that lesson to compare with, with today's study for sure. But Luke begins this portion of his gospel narrative by giving his account of Christ, declaring this warning to the people to beware of the scribes. Now, these guys would have been standing there in the temple at the time when he said, beware of them, right? So here again is another contrast, if you want to pull this out. We see the boldness of Christ versus really the lack of boldness in many Christ followers today. We don't see this kind of boldness very much anymore. Verse 45, then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, so Christ here is speaking directly to his disciples, but you'll notice that Luke said all the people could hear him. Don't forget what Mark said at the end of our study last week, Mark 12, 37. He said that the common people heard him gladly. Amen. So those who desire to know Christ, those who desire to know the truth are glad when they hear it. That can be one of our takeaways here. Verse 46, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at the feasts. Now, as you do your comparison study, you'll see that Christ included the Pharisees to his list of those that we are to beware of here. That's in Matthew's account. But in verse 46, we see a different kind of desire. We talked about a desire to know truth, a desire to know Christ. Here we see a different kind of desire, don't we? And it stems from a different kind of love. What we see here is neither a love for God 
nor a love for the truth at all. It has nothing to do with either one of those things, but it has everything to do with self. That's the kind of desire we see here. Matthew tells us that Jesus said in Matthew 23, 5, all their works, we're talking about the Pharisees and the scribes, all their works they do to be seen by men. Wow. And then he goes on to say something else. He says, they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. So there's a Bible word for you. What's a phylactery? Well, a phylactery is uh, it's a Jewish thing, and it's something that they would wear on their foreheads and on their arms. Um, think of it like this. They would take pieces of parchment paper, and they would write down the law of God on there. Passages from, say, Exodus 13 or Deuteronomy 6 and, and so on. They would write down these passages of the law on these pieces of parchment paper, and they would put them in a little encasement that is attached to a leather strap that would go on their head or a band around their left arm so that the law would be close to their heart and close to their head. That was the idea behind this, but these guys would make them really big, right? Really sort of gaudy would be another way to put that. What they were saying is that um, my effort to keep God's law close to my head and heart is greater than yours. That's, that's the idea they're trying to put off here by broadening these phylacteries, right? They would widen them. They were more eager to be reminded of God's law. It was all for show. As Christ said, whatever they do, they do to be seen by men. And so their desire was to look righteous. Never mind actually being righteous. The job was to look righteous. They loved to be seen in places like the marketplace or the synagogue or at feasts. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 3, do not do according to their works for they say and do not do. Yeah, that's right. And what's the word for that? When someone says something and doesn't do it, I believe that word is hypocrite. And we've talked about that. Christ was not afraid to use that word in regard to these people. So these outwardly religious, but really inwardly repulsive men were actually whitewashed tombs, as Jesus said as well. They were clean on the outside, but the inside was full of dead men's bones. So these guys would parade themselves around town like men of the people out in the marketplace. They would put themselves in a place of prominence like men of God in the, syn of, in the synagogue. Of course, they would cut in front of all the women and children so that they could get the first plate at the feast. These guys were grasping for glory. That's all they were doing. They had a total lack of self-awareness. Jesus said, beware of these people. Now, this word beware is interesting. If you look into it, the word literally means to bring near. Typically, when we say beware, we're thinking, you know, I'm going to keep them out there, not bring them in here. But the word literally means to bring near. But the word picture is very interesting. It's something like this. It's if you were to bring a ship to land. Okay, say you had a ship that was brought into dock, into the harbor or whatever, but you brought it in close so that you could simply touch at it, not touch it, not get on it, but see it very well. You would touch at it. That's the word picture here. So I would say it like this. Christ is saying, keep your enemy up close, but keep them at arm's length. You know what I mean? It's like a ship that's docked in the bay. You can see it, but you're not about to set sail in it. 
That's the idea. In other words, don't let the outward appearance give you an ungodly, ungodly inward desire to follow them, to be like them. You need to know your enemy very intimately. You can see it, but you know it well enough to not get on the boat, not join them in what they're doing. That's the word for beware. Because the truth is, the same guy in the long robe over there that's making the long prayer, he might be the same guy that's making off with the widow's house that we're about to see in verse 47. Beware. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive greater condemnation. So this word for devour here, it literally means to consume or to forcibly appropriate. And so the bottom line is this. These scribes were thieves. That's who they really were, okay? The thing with pretense, and I think this is a good thing, it's not hard to see. Pretense is not hard to see. The word for pretense here, it means an outward show. It means a pretended cause. And so these scribes and these Pharisees who were, of course, thieves, they were also living a lie. They liked their robes to be long. They wanted their phylacteries to be broad. Everybody could see them and so on. They wanted to pray for a really long time because that's what really religious people do. It was all for a show. I mean, they might have had the length part down, but they did not have the depth. They did not have the depth part down. Very critical. What they thought would make other, people's, other people believe that they were close to God, that they were living for God, actually led these men further and further away from him. Now, let me just say this right here. There's nothing wrong with long prayers, okay? Luke chapter 6, verse 12 says, Now it came to pass in those days that he, meaning Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer. So the problem is not with the length of the prayer. The problem is with the pretense in the prayer, right? The pretended cause, the outward show, right? Pray as long as you want to. That's okay, just don't be pretentious about it. That's the idea here. So here's another contrast for you. When Christ prayed, we're contrasting how Christ prayed versus the Pharisees and the scribes. When Christ prayed, and by the way, he prayed for extended periods of time. We just read that he prayed all through the night. Where was he when he did that? He was on a mountain, not in the marketplace. He was in solitude, not in the synagogue. And he was alone with his father, not at the feast. So yeah, believer, go ahead and pray. And you pray all night long if you need to. That's fine. Bring your burdens to the Lord. Bring your sorrows to the Lord. Bring your pain to the Lord. But leave the pretense. Okay, remove the mask. Check your motive. Check your heart and just come as you are before the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the purpose of my prayer? Is a good question to ask. Is my purpose to be seen by men or is it to be heard by God? Something else to point out here. We notice levels of condemnation in this passage. Jesus said, those who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers will receive greater condemnation. Now, that should at least make our ears perk up a little bit, if not make the hair on the back of our neck stand up. Because what he just said is that hell will seemingly be worse for those who pretend to be righteous before God. Wow. Can I just put this plainly for us this morning? 
If we were to say this plainly, we, were, we could say that hell is going to be worse for the hypocrite, those who say and do not do. Now, of course, we're not going to boast in anybody's condemnation at all. Of course not. God himself takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. But the fact is, these guys knew better. They knew better. I mean, they even taught some very good things. They taught the truth. Just listen to what Jesus said. He tells us in Matthew 23, verses 2 through 3, that the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. So they said some really good things. They spoke some truth. But Jesus didn't stop there. He said, but do not do according to their works. For they say and do not do. That's right. So they taught one thing and done another. Malachi 2.7 says, For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. That's right. They got this part right. These guys knew the truth. They spoke the truth of God by and large, but they failed in the application of the true things that they taught and said. They did not apply that to their own life. Let me give you an example of a scribe and a priest who did do things God's way. And of course, these scribes in Luke 20 would have been very familiar with this passage, no doubt about that. But if you want to see the appropriate ministry of a scribe and a priest, then look at Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 of Nehemiah 8 for you. And we're going to look at Ezra to see how Ezra performed his priestly duties. And if you'd like to follow along, again, Nehemiah 8, starting in verse 1. Now, this would have been after the wall had been completed. The captives had returned uh, back to Jerusalem. And so here we are at Nehemiah 8, starting in verse 1. Now, all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. I love that. That's the word picture. It's like if you and I and all of Union were downtown at the square around the courthouse, just gathered around the word of God. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. Verse two. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then in verse three, he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. Hmm. My hour-long sermons don't seem too bad now, do they? From morning until midday, before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Very important. For half a day, they paid attention to the word of God as it was read out in the public square. Verse 4, So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for that purpose, and beside him at his right hand stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Urijah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And at his left hand, Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadana. Now that's one of my favorites. If you're going to go with the Hebrew name, Hashbadana is not a bad one. Zechariah, Meshulam. Verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Reverence for the word of God. 
And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. What a way to listen to the word of God. Guys, this is out in the public. Everybody was there. They stood up, they lifted their hands up, they bowed their heads down, and they worshiped with their faces to the ground. Verse 7. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodijah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites, listen to this, helped the people understand the law. We're talking about a contrast between the Pharisees and the scribes and Ezra and these guys, these priests, and how they prescribed and helped people with the word of God. The Pharisees and scribes said truth, but they said and did not do. These guys were actually speaking truth and helping people to understand the truth that they spoke from the word of God. And the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book, the law of God, and they gave the sense meaning they helped them see what context this word was written in. They helped them understand the Bible. They helped them to understand the reading the word of God says in verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Man, let's stop right there for one second. When is the last time you wept over the word of God? When is the last time you were in the scriptures and it brought you to tears? These people heard the word of God proclaimed out loud. They were helped to understand the word of God by the priests that were present and they wept over the word of God. It's beautiful. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. In other words, don't just say stuff, guys, go do stuff. Don't just say and not do, say and do. Send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. Amen. When we rightly understand the word of God, it forces us to do something. It commands us and calls us out of our selfishness to go do something. It's not just about knowing it. It's about living it out. And we see this very beautifully in Nehemiah 8. Guys, a right understanding of God's word should lead us to reverence. It should lead us to worship. It should lead us to obedience to the word of God. But as I said last week, faith is the critical element because faith is what connects the head to the heart, isn't it? So this religious crowd here in Luke chapter 20, they had a head full of truth, but that's all they had because their heart was completely void of the truth. They were faithless, very faithless. Unlike this poor widow that we're about to read about in the second half of our text. Again, we're going to see another major contrast. Look at chapter 21, verse 1. Luke 21, verse 1. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. Yeah, so Mark gives us further insight here. And I love the nuance that Mark captures. If you read over in Mark chapter 12, verse 41, 
it says that Jesus actually sat opposite of the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. Interesting. So what we're learning here is that Christ is not so much concerned with what we give, but how we give. He sees how we give. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, meaning the person, the giver. Give as the giver purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Amen. I love that. I love that. You know that word cheerful is where we get our word hilarious? The word used for cheerful is where we get our word hilarious. So God wants us to give hilariously. (laughs) I think that's pretty cool. I don't know about you. I've only seen that done one time where a church gave hilariously. Chris and I were visiting a church in Bentonville, Arkansas one time many, many years ago. And we had a good time of worship. The worship was great, uh, lively, and just, you know, spirit-filled, I felt like. And then something happened that I've never seen done in church before then, and I've never seen this done afterwards. Some guy steps up to the podium, and he says, All right, church, it's time for the offering. And everybody literally jumped up out of their seats and said, Woo! Yeah! And we had, there was girls running down the aisle. I'm not kidding. Twirling streamers. People were jumping up, shouting. Yeah! Yeah! And then the, you'd see, starting in the first aisle, they would file out. There was a big old, old box, like cardboard box out in front of the pulpit. So starting in the first aisle, they would come and they start throwing stuff in there. That aisle would come. The next aisle would file out. They were throwing everything in there. I think some guy threw a ham sandwich in there. I don't remember. But they were tossing everything into the box with complete joy. So part of me was like, whoa, I'm not comfortable right now. (laughs) But the other part was like, that's how you give hilariously. That's how you give with a heart full of joy. They were as excited about the offering as any portion of the service. I was pretty amazed by that. It obviously left an impression on me. That was probably 25 years ago. But um, that's how you give hilariously. But as I understand it, this treasury that we're talking about in Luke here in the synagogue was at, at least one box, probably multiple boxes that had a sort of a shofar-like horn that would come out of the box. And so the people would come by and they would drop their coins into the top of this horn this shofar, and it would rattle down into the box, okay? And so the coins would all be rolling down. And, of course, you can imagine the noise in the temple at this time, especially from the wealthy people who had a lot of coins that would be dropping down into these horns and on into the box, okay? You also don't have to try very hard to imagine some of the pride that would possibly well up in the hearts of those who had to stand there for a long time putting coin after coin into the treasury, I'm sure it was just filled with the sound of of gift after gift. It's probably noisy. When I think about this passage, I think about a casino, you know, where you just hear people dropping quarter after quarter into the slot machine. Similar to that, it would have been noisy. They're not dropping bills. They're dropping coins into this horn that drops down into the box of the treasury. Now, again, I'm not trying to say that these wealthy people were necessarily prideful. Okay, certainly not. Neither did Jesus say that, by the way. But Scripture does tell us that Christ saw how the people were putting money into the treasury. 
He saw how they were doing that. So another lesson here is that the what, that's the gift. That's the what. But the how is the heart behind the gift. How am I giving the what? Okay, that's the lesson we learned here. Now, other people around me might not know that, but Christ most certainly does know. And I'll tell you this, one of the reasons we don't pass the plate here at Community Church uh, is so that we can, remute, we can remove any temptation of public pretense that might come with our giving. Okay, so there's a lot of reasons why we don't do that, uh, but that's just one of them. We want to remove that temptation of pretense. Now, not that any of you guys would ever do this. I'm certain of that. But it might be the case that some people in some churches uh, where the plate is passed had maybe a good week at work. Maybe they had a good month at work. Maybe they were a big contributor to the church. And as that plate comes by, that person with that kind of heart might be tempted to sort of write the check and leave it face up in the plate. You know what I'm saying? Just so that person next to them would know how generous they are to God. Just so that they would know how righteous they are, how faithful they are to God, while others may not have anything to give. And if a plate's in front of them, they would feel like they would have to give grudgingly. And the Bible says don't do that, right? Scripture's clear. Christ knows how we give. He knows how we give. So we don't have to burden ourselves with that. We don't need to pass a plate in front of everybody to embarrass anyone, to put anybody on the spot. You give how the Lord tells you to give. That's between you and the Lord, right? I would encourage you to give hilariously. That's very biblical. We know this, that every believer is commanded to give. That's a commandment from Scripture. So it's not the what, but it's the how. Okay, and again, passing the plate's not wrong. If you're familiar with churches like that, that's okay. I'm not saying it's inherently wrong, although I don't see biblical precedent for it. Um, what we've done here at Community Church is we've just designated a place to give. There's a box out on the table outside, and um, we hope that that makes it a little more discreet for you to give, a little more easy for you to give, maybe puts a little less pressure. We don't want people to draw attention to themselves. We don't want you to have pressure in your giving. We want you to take that up with Christ every time you give, okay? But again, when you do give, and it is a command for all of us as believers to give, consider Christ's words about the widow as you give. Verse 2, And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. Yeah, so Christ sees all of our giving. He sees the rich when they give. He sees the poor when they give. But rest assured that no gift has ever gone unnoticed. God knows every gift, right? Because he is the God who sees. We see that in Genesis chapter 16, verse 13. So there's no gift that's too small. There's no difficulty that's too big or that God doesn't see. He is the God who sees all of this, okay? So as a believer, you can take heart that God sees you even in your, in your giving. He's, you're squarely in the Lord's Sight. Okay, so there's no need for embarrassment. There's no need for pressure. You're giving to the Lord your God. This woman here gave two mites. Now, a mite literally means thin or small. It was a small copper coin, very small, very thin. Uh, some would say it was worth about one-fifth of a penny uh, or thereabouts. Now, there's, there's a ton of debate about this, okay? I mean, about how much a mite was worth. Uh, the calculations are literally all over the place. 
But everyone agrees on this, that it was just a very minuscule amount, a very small amount. For example, if we say a denarius, we know a denarius was a day's wage. Okay, again, there's discrepancy on how much that was. And I'm not trying to establish that. I'm trying to draw out the difference. So let's, let's say a lot of people believe that a denarius was worth about 17 cents. That would have been a day's wage during that time. This widow would have had to have 83 more mites in order to have one day's wage. So you can see that regardless of the calculations, this widow was very, very poor. And moreover, I think her poverty could have come at least in part from these scribes who would have likely have devoured her house. Verse 47. Of course, that would have been very unlawful for them to do that. It would have been very um, against the scriptures, no doubt. It would have been uh, lacking common sense or even common decency. But apparently it was a practice of these Pharisees and scribes during that day. They were money lenders, money changers. You'll see in portions of the text, okay? Um, think of it like this. These folks were not only the preacher, they were the banker. How would you like that? <laughs> not exactly uh, how you would picture a pastor, uh, in my opinion. These guys were businessmen, okay? And we know what Christ thought about that. In John chapter 2, verses 14 through uh, 16, Christ actually made a whip and he drove these money changers out of the temple, so these guys would lend money to poor people so they could purchase things like houses. Okay, And then what they would do is they would charge an outrageous amount of interest on this loan so that when this poor widow or a widow like her, for example, would get behind on her payments, then they could foreclose on the house. As Jesus said, devour it. It's completely immoral. It's completely unlawful. Exodus chapter 22, 25 says, If you lend money to any of my people, who are poor among you, you shall not be like the money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. Leviticus 25.36 says, Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. And then Deuteronomy 23.19, You shall not charge interest to your brother. Interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. That's very hard to misinterpret. It's very clear, is it not? But I don't want you to miss the point here. This widow feared God, but the scribes and the Pharisees, they did not fear God. Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So you see, with, without the fear of God, we're not going to understand what's going on here. This widow had two mites. That's what she had. That's not much money by any standard of measurement whatsoever. Now think about this. If she had only given one mite, she would still have given 50% of all that she had. You and I complain about 10. But this poor widow did not even keep one mite back for herself. I mean, honestly, do you think anybody would have blamed her if she had? Right? No one would have blamed her, I don't think, if she would have just put one mite in the treasury. But this woman, she was a woman who had a heart for God. And because God had already had her heart, then it naturally followed that he was going to get everything else as well. That's how that works. When Christ has your heart, he has everything else as well. 
right? We are gods. And you see, our generosity, it really is a reflection of our understanding of God's gift to us. That's one way to think about that. As a believer in Christ, you are gods. You are the coin with his image on it. That's what you and I are as believers. And we have been bought at a price. 1 Corinthians 6.20. Therefore, we are his purchased possession. That's what he tells us in Ephesians 1.14, which means that all that we are and all that we have are his. Every last might. Galatians chapter 2, verse 19 says, For I, through the law, died to the law. Why? Why would you say that, Paul? That I might live, he says. That's exactly right. You know what? The law said 10%. The law said give 10%. Leviticus 27, Numbers 18, Deuteronomy 14, among others. But the new covenant, through the blood of Jesus Christ, says live to God. Like with all of it, your entire life. All that you have belongs to him, right? Christ gave his life for me. Why? That I might live completely for him. Not in part, but in whole. My everything, everything that I have is his belonging. I belong to him. Not in pretense, but in utter poverty. I give up everything for the cause of Christ. All because Christ is my richest gain. That's the point. You see, when I keep stuff back for myself, when I hold onto it too tight, I'm saying, I love this more. We can't be that kind of people. Christ must be our richest gain. We can't have anything before him at all. Let's just let scripture say it, okay? Guys, I'm just talking about Christianity. I'm not talking about super Christians. I'm talking about basic Christianity 101. This is what it looks like. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. Amen. Do you want your stuff more than you want Jesus? That's the bottom line. Which one am I holding on to tighter? I've got to answer that question. But I love that old African-American spiritual that says, you can have all this world. Give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. You can have everything else. What do I really want to keep back for myself when I can have Christ? What is it that means that much to me? I like to think of this story of the widow and her mites from another angle as well. I, I think it's possible. I don't know if this is true, okay? This is my opinion. I think this is possible that the actions of this widow could also be her saying, you know what, guys? Don't just take my house. Take my last two coins too. Take it all. In other words, you can have all that I have. I'm still going to have God. It's the only thing I really need anyway. Can you see the faith here? Can you see the freedom that this woman has? Total freedom. Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 6, 29, to him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. That's right. Oh, you want my coat here? Take my hat too. Take it all. 
All this stuff is meaningless to me. All I need is Christ. I love the prayer of St. Patrick. Yeah, that, that St. Patrick, the one with green. <laughs> that St. Patrick, the Irish one, listen to what he prayed. It's amazing. Christ with me. Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ where I lie, Christ where I sit, Christ where I arise, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks to me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Christ. May your salvation, Lord, be ever with us. Amen. What a prayer. Guys, this widow got it right. She got it right. Verse three. So he said, truly, this is Jesus. I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. Amen. Notice Jesus said that this poor widow had put in more than all, which is to say her two mites were worth more to God than all of the money that had been given by everyone else combined. You see, everyone else gave some of what they had. They gave from their abundance. But this poor widow, she gave all of what she had. She gave from her poverty. I love how Pastor Jeremy Walker says this. He says, everyone else gave a little of their all, but the widow gave all of her little. Exactly right. You see, guys, that's the kind of giving that pleases God right there. It's not related to the amount that was placed in the treasury, but rather the cost to the one who gave it. In other words, value is determined by sacrifice. In God's economy, value is determined by what is left not by what's given. You see the difference in that? It's a big difference. What has my giving cost me? You know, we say to ourselves, I'm a little short this week. It was a tough week. I didn't, I don't know. I'll give when I can afford it. Maybe when I get more money, then I'll give more money, right? Guys, when we say things like that, we completely miss the point. We completely miss the point entirely. Because the truth is we can actually give more when we have less. We can. God doesn't need my money. I hope you know that. Community church, we don't need your money. We're a small church. We're a new church. God has blessed us with givers from around the country as well as many, most, all of you in this room. We're fine financially. This is not a sermon about getting money out of your pocket. God doesn't care about that. He cares about your heart. That's what he's after. What's your heart when you give, right? Those two mites, they meant absolutely nothing to the temple. Nothing. That wouldn't even put up a curtain in the temple. It meant nothing as far as that's concerned. But praise God, you know what else? Those two mites didn't mean anything to that poor widow who gave it either. Amen. Her heart was not tethered to the things of this world. She had a heart that was following after God. And of course, that meant a great deal to Christ. Verse four, for all of these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. Guys, we do not truly know how to live until we understand and truly know how to give. That's living. This poor widow was flat broke. 
but she had a more abundant life than everybody else in the temple that day. She knew how to live because she did give hilariously. She gave cheerfully, not grudgingly. She gave it all. For real. All of it. Jesus said, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and give unto God that which is God's. In other words, Caesar's, you know, Caesar, he gets my taxes. All right. But God gets my all. God gets everything of me and about me. I recently had somebody tell me that they had to leave their current job and start looking for a new one because they had committed to their employer originally that they would work for them so long as that job did not conflict with their relationship with God. Hmm. Love it. In other words, this person couldn't work on Sundays or Wednesdays because they needed to be in church and they needed to be at Bible study. So when the employer begin requiring this person to work on those days, then the decision was clear. It was already made. It's time to put in the notice and start looking for another job. So they did that. By the way, they put in their notice before they had a job. Faith. Praise God, the Lord has blessed this person with another job that will accommodate those hours and hopefully um, encourage this person's relationship with Christ. That's God coming through for his people, for his children, who have purposed in their heart to follow him by faith. Guys, there's a lot more things in this life that are way more important than money. And our relationship with Christ is chief among those things. But I got to tell you, being a Christian is costly, okay? Obedience often comes at a very high price. Faithfulness, to Christ, it might even cause me to forsake some sort of financial gain. It might even cost me financial security. That's a possibility for sure. So each and every one of us who call ourselves Christians, we have to decide, is that worth it to me? Is it worth it to me? In 2 Samuel chapter 24, the Lord instructed David to build an altar to sacrifice to him. All right, and so this was after a plague had come through Israel because of their sin, David had repented of his sins and, and, and offered to purchase this threshing floor from a king by the name of Aruna in order to build this altar that, that God had commanded him to build. And he was doing this, one, because God had commanded, but so also the, the plague would be removed from Israel. And so the negotiations begin, and King Aruna said to David, uh, I'll give you everything that you need to make the sacrifice, David. I'll give you the oxen. I'll even give you the threshing implements. I mean, I'll even give you the yokes for the oxen that are made of wood so you can start a fire for the sacrifice. I'll give all of that to you. But then David said in 2 Samuel 24, 24, no, but I'll surely buy it from you for a price. Here's why. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. (laughs) So David bought the threshing floor and the the oxen for 50 shekels of silver that day. What has following Christ cost me? The price that, that he paid for me cost him everything, didn't it? What has following him cost me? 
2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9 through 15 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And in this I give advice. Here's the advice. So we need to pay attention to this. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago. In other words, the desire was there a year ago. Don't let go of that desire. Keep doing the thing. Verse 11, but now you must also complete the doing of it. Guys, walking with Christ is a daily decision to die to yourself and follow him by faith every single day of your life to complete the doing. Not to just start it. Not to just have a desire to do it, but to actually do it. To complete it. He says, as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also must be a completion of what you have. You desired to follow Christ. Good. Now desire to complete that walk with Christ. Finish strong. Be Christ's all day, every day. For if there is first a willing mind, Paul said, it's accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. That blows that idea of when I get more, I'll give more right out of the water. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also might supply your lack, that there might be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Amen. Christ is our model for giving because he gave it all. And he uses the gifts that he's given to us individually to provide for the needs collectively. That's how this works. Though Christ was rich, he became poor. Christ gave from his poverty, didn't he? I mean, he had to borrow a denarius. We talked about this a week or two ago. He had to borrow a denarius because he didn't have one. But he gave his life. He gave it all. This widow in our passage today is a type of Christ. She's an example of sacrificial giving. I hope you understand this morning the freedom that comes with giving like this. This is freedom. Do you know what it's like to be set free from the bondage of money? You can be. You can be. You see, when we detach our heart from materialism, when we detach our heart from money, we're no longer bound by even a tithe. We're no longer bound by the law. We're no longer bound by just taking 10% off the top and keeping 9% for ourselves while patting ourselves on the back saying, good job, Christian. No, that's not freedom. Guys, when we lose the pretense and we embrace our poverty in view of the matchless grace that we've been given in Christ Jesus our Lord, then we're free to give hilariously. We're free to give everything. We're free to give our all. That's real freedom right there. I can guarantee you that. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now it's true that a poor spirit may not always have empty pockets. Okay, that's true. But any serious follower of Christ who has humbled themselves in obedience to God's will to complete the call, if you will, 
then we understand that that's most certainly a possibility, that we could leave and could lose everything. We understand that that's a possibility. Moreover, we're good with that. We might lose every material thing we have. You can't have Christ. Christ is mine forevermore. I'm not going to trade that for anything. I'm not going to trade that for anything. Christ is my richest gain. And that's the goal. As a believer, what is your richest gain? Christ is our richest gain. So let's drop the pretense. Let's embrace our poverty. Let's die to ourselves each and every day and begin to live free. No longer bound by sin. No longer bound by our fleshly desires. No longer bound by a love for this world or the lust that's in it. But freely giving everything to Christ. Everything to Christ who has given everything to us. I'll close it up like this. Guys, our passage today is about two kinds of people. Two kinds of people. Those to whom this world means everything. And those to whom this world means nothing. Now, where do I find myself among those people? We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time together in your word. We thank you for the truth that's in it. Please help us to understand it at a heart level. Help us to take this truth beyond our intellect, Lord, and work it down into our spirit so that those of us who have a desire to follow Christ, to begin that journey with Christ, will also have that desire to complete it, to be faithful, to forsake all and follow Christ. Lord, I pray that there's nothing that I would ever hold on to tighter than my richest gain, which is Christ Jesus, my Lord. Please help me to live free, free from the bondage of sin, the lust of money or lust of this world, to be free. To stop worrying about the law. Does the New Testament tell us we still have to tithe? That's law. I want to give hilariously. Help me to not be bound by any kind of law, but to be set free by the grace of God. So that I can live a life that's pleasing in your sight, that's not attached to anything down here. My prayer this morning, Lord, is that you just do a work in our heart, change us, conform us into the likeness of Christ. Help us to see the example today, to see the contrasts that that really do jump off the page in this text and decide what camp are we in. Help me to take an honest evaluation of my own heart and get honest before you as to what camp I'm in. Does the world mean everything to me or does it mean nothing to me? Is all of my hope in Christ Jesus? I pray that it is. And if not, I pray that it soon will be. I pray for those who don't have a relationship with you this morning, those who hear this message and don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I pray this morning that would change for them. That they would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on a cross for their sins, rose from the grave so that they could have hope in him eternally if they would believe, if they would turn from their sin and believe 
that precious gospel message, they can be saved for all of eternity. I pray that many would trust you this morning. I pray for believers, you would help us to take that next step of faith in forsaking all to follow Christ. That when we come to the end of our life, there'll be nothing left but Jesus. Our richest gain. We love you, Lord, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.